This is Audible. Welcome to The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John C. Maxwell. Copyright 2007. Published by Thomas Nelson. What would happen if a top expert with more than 30 years of leadership experience were willing to distill everything he had learned about leadership into a handful of life-changing principles just for you? It would change your life. Listen as Dr. Maxwell outlines the laws of leadership that transcend time, place, culture, and situation. Laws that can be applied to business and private life. Follow these laws and people will follow you. And now, America's expert on leadership, John C. Maxwell, with the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. During a break at a conference where I was teaching, a young college student came up to me and said, I know you are teaching the 21 Laws of Leadership, but I want to get to the bottom line. With intensity, he raised his index finger and asked, What is the one thing I need to know about leadership? Trying to match his intensity, I raised my index finger and answered, The one thing you need to know about leadership is that there is more than one thing that you need to know about leadership. To lead well, we must do 21 things well. Each law was like a tool, ready to be picked up and used to help you achieve your dreams and add value to other people. Pick up even one, and you will become a better leader. Learn them all, and people will gladly follow you. Now, let's open the toolbox together. Law number one. The law of the lid. Leadership ability determines a person's level of effectiveness. Leadership ability is the lid that determines a person's level of effectiveness. The lower an individual's ability to lead the lower the lid on his potential. The higher the individual's ability to lead, the higher the lid on his potential. Let me tell you a story that illustrates the law of the lid. In the 1930s, two young brothers named Dick and Maurice moved from New Hampshire to California in search of the American dream. After a while, their entrepreneurial spirit and interest in the entertainment industry prompted them to open a small drive-in restaurant in Pasadena located just east of Glendale. Dick and Maurice's tiny drive-in restaurant was a great success, and in 1940 they decided to move the operation to San Bernardino, a working-class boomtown 50 miles east of Los Angeles. They built a larger facility and expanded their menu from hot dogs, fries, and shakes to include barbecue beef and pork sandwiches, hamburgers, and other items. Their business exploded. Annual sales reached 200000 and the brothers found themselves splitting 50000 in profits every year, a sum that put them in the town's financial elite. By the mid-1950s, annual revenue hit 350000 and by then Dick and Marie split net profits of about $100,000 each year. Who were these brothers? Back in those days, you could have found out by driving to their small restaurant on the corner of 14th and E Streets in San Bernardino. On the front of the small octagonal building hung a neon sign that said simply, McDonald's Hamburgers. 
Dick and Maurice McDonald had hit the great American jackpot, and the rest, as they say, is history, right? Wrong. The McDonalds never went any farther because their weak leadership put a lid on their ability to succeed. They lacked the leadership necessary to make a larger enterprise effective. Dick and Maurice were good single restaurant owners. They understood how to run a business, make their systems efficient, cut costs, and increase profits. They were efficient managers, but they were not leaders. Their thinking patterns clamped a lid down on what they could do and become. At the height of their success, Dick and Maurice found themselves smack dab against the law of the lid. In 1954, the brothers hooked up with a man named Ray Kroc, who was a leader. Kroc had been running the small company he founded which sold machines for making milkshakes. He knew about McDonald's. The restaurant was one of his best customers. And as soon as he visited the store, he had a vision for its potential. In his mind, he could see the restaurant going nationwide in hundreds of markets. He soon struck a deal with Dick and Maurice, and in 1955, he formed McDonald's Systems, Inc., later called the McDonald's Corporation. Between 1955 and 59, Kroc succeeded in opening 100 restaurants. Four years after that, there were 500 McDonald's. Today, the company has opened more than 31,000 restaurants in 119 countries. Leadership ability, or more specifically, the lack of leadership ability, was the lid on the McDonald's brothers' effectiveness. I believe that success is within the reach of just about everyone. But I also believe that personal success without leadership ability brings only limited effectiveness. Without leadership ability, a person's impact is only a fraction of what it could be with good leadership. The higher you want to climb, the more you need leadership. The greater the impact you want to make, the greater your influence needs to be. Whatever you will accomplish is restricted by your ability to lead others. Leadership ability is always the lid on personal and organizational effectiveness. If a person's leadership is strong, the organization's lid is high. But if it's not, then the organization is limited. That's why in times of trouble, organizations naturally look for new leadership. Wherever you look, you can find smart, talented, successful people who are able to go only so far because of the limitations of their leadership. For example, when Apple got started in the late 1970s, Steve Wozniak was the brains behind the Apple computer. His leadership lid was low, but that was not the case for his partner, Steve Jobs. His lid was so high that he built a world-class organization and gave it a nine-digit value. That's the impact of the law of the lid. In the 1980s, I met Don Stevenson, the chairman of Global Hospitality Resources, Inc. of San Diego, California, an international hospitality advisory and consulting firm. Over lunch, I asked him about his organization. Today, he primarily does consulting, but back then, his company took over the management of hotels and resorts that weren't doing well financially. His company oversaw many excellent facilities, such as La Costa in Southern California. Don said that whenever his people went into an organization to take it over, they always started by doing two things. First, they trained all the staff to improve their level of service to the customers, and second, 
they fired the leader. When he told me that, I was surprised. You always fire him, I asked? Every time? That's right, every time, he said. Don't you talk to the person first to check him out to see if he's a good leader, I said. No, he answered, if he had been a good leader, the organization wouldn't be in the mess that it's in. And I thought to myself, of course, it's the law of the lid. To reach the highest level of effectiveness, you have to raise the lid one way or the other. Law number two, the law of influence. The true measure of leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. What do leaders look like? Do they always look powerful, impressive, charismatic? And how do you measure the effectiveness of a leader? Can you put two people side by side and instantly tell which is the better leader? These are questions people have asked for hundreds of years. One of the most effective leaders of the 20th century was anything but impressive upon first appearance. When people think of Mother Teresa, they envision a frail little woman dedicated to serving the poorest of the poor. But she was also a tremendous leader. I say that because she had an amazing amount of influence with others. And if you don't have influence, you will never be able to lead others. Mother Teresa's impact reached far beyond her immediate environment. People from all walks of life and from nations around the globe respected her, and when she spoke, people listened. Author and former presidential speechwriter Peggy Noonan wrote about a speech Mother Teresa gave at the National Prayer Breakfast in 1994. It illustrates her level of influence with others. Noonan observed, the Washington establishment was there, plus a few thousand born-again Christians, Orthodox Catholics, and Jews. Mother Teresa spoke of God, of love, of families. She said, we must love one another and care for one another. There were great purrs of agreement. But as the speech continued, it became more pointed. She spoke of unhappy parents in old people's homes who are hurt because they are forgotten. She asked, are we willing to give until it hurts in order to be with our families, or do we put our own interests first? The baby boomers in the audience began to shift in their seats, and she continued. I feel that the great destroyer of peace today is abortion, she said, and she told them why, in uncompromising terms. For about 1.3 seconds there was a silence, then applause swept the room. But not everyone clapped. The President and First Lady, Bill and Hillary Clinton, the Vice President and Mrs. Gore, looked like seated statues at Madame Tussauds, moving not a muscle. Mother Teresa didn't stop there either. When she was finished, there was almost no one she hadn't offended. At that time, if just about any other person in the world had made those statements, people's reactions would have been openly hostile. They would have booed, jeered, or stormed out. But the speaker was Mother Teresa. She was a real leader, and when the real leader speaks, people listen. Leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. Leadership is often misunderstood. When people hear that someone has an impressive title or an assigned leadership position, they assume that individual to be a leader. Sometimes that's true, but titles don't have much value when it comes to leading. 
True leadership cannot be awarded, appointed, or assigned. It comes only from influence, and that cannot be mandated. It must be earned. The only thing a title can buy is a little time, either to increase your level of influence with others or to undermine it. There are plenty of misconceptions and myths that people embrace about leaders and leadership. Here are some of the common ones. First, the management myth. A widespread misunderstanding is that leading and managing are one and the same. The main difference between the two is that leadership is about influencing people to follow, while management focuses on maintaining systems and processes. The best way to test whether a person can lead rather than manage is to ask him to create positive change. Managers can maintain direction, but often they can't change it. Systems and processes can do only so much. To move people in a new direction, you need influence. Number two is the entrepreneur myth. Frequently people assume that all entrepreneurs are leaders, but that's not always the case. Entrepreneurs are skilled at seeing opportunities and going after them. They see needs and understand how to meet them in a way that produces a profit. But not all of them are good with people. Many find it necessary to partner with someone skilled at the people part of the equation. If they can't influence people, they can't lead. Number three, the knowledge myth. Sir Francis Bacon said, Knowledge is power. If you believe power to be the essence of leadership, then you might naturally assume that those who possess knowledge and intelligence are therefore leaders. That isn't necessarily true. You can visit any major university and meet brilliant research scientists and philosophers whose ability to think is so high that it's off the charts, but whose ability to lead is so low that it doesn't even register on the charts. Neither IQ nor education necessarily equates to leadership. Number four, the pioneer myth. Another misconception is that anyone who is out in front of the crowd is a leader. But being first isn't always the same as leading. To be a leader, a person has to not only be out front, but also have people intentionally coming behind him, following his lead, and acting on his vision. Being a trendsetter is not the same as being a leader. Don't listen to the claims of the person professing to be a leader. Don't examine his credentials. Don't check his title. Check his influence. The proof of leadership is found in the followers. I personally learned the law of influence when I accepted my first job out of college. I went in with all the right credentials. I had the proper college degree. I had a great deal of insight into the work because of the training given to me by my father. I possessed the position and the title of leader in the organization. It made for a good-looking resume, but it didn't make me the real leader. At my first board meeting, I quickly found out who the real leader was, a farmer named Claude. When he spoke, people listened. When he made a suggestion, people respected it. When he led, others followed. If I wanted to make an impact, I would have to influence Claude. He, in turn, would influence everybody else. It was the law of influence at work. That being the case, why do some people emerge as leaders while others can't influence people, no matter how hard they try? I believe that several factors come into play. Character. 
who they are. True leadership always begins with the inner person. That's why someone like Billy Graham is able to draw more and more followers to him as time goes by. People can sense the depth of his character. Relationships. Who they know. You're a leader only if you have followers, and that always requires the development of relationships. The deeper the relationships, the stronger the potential for leadership. In my career, each time I entered a new leadership position, I immediately started building relationships. Building off of the right kinds of relationships with the right people, and you can become the real leader in an organization. Knowledge. What they know. Information is vital to a leader. You need a grasp of the facts and understanding of dynamic factors and timing and a vision for the future. Knowledge alone won't make someone a leader, but without knowledge, no one can become one. Whenever I was new in an organization, I always spent a lot of time doing homework before I tried to take the lead. Intuition. What they feel. Leadership requires more than just a command of data. It demands an ability to deal with numerous intangibles. In fact, that is often one of the main differences between managers and leaders. Leaders seek to recognize and influence intangibles such as energy, morale, timing, and momentum. Experience. Where they've been. The greater the challenge you've faced as a leader in the past, the more likely followers are to give you a chance in the present. Experience doesn't guarantee credibility, but gives you a chance to prove that you are capable. Past successes. What they've done. Nothing speaks to followers like a good track record. Ability. What they can do. The bottom line for followers is what a leader is capable of. They want to know whether that person can lead the team to victory. Ultimately, that's the reason people will listen to you and acknowledge you as their leader. As soon as they no longer believe you can deliver, they will stop listening and following. I love the leadership proverb that says, He who thinks he leads but has no followers is only taking a walk. If you can't influence people, then they will not follow you. And if people won't follow... You are not a leader. That's the law of influence. Law number three, the law of process. Leadership develops daily, not in a day. Anne Scheiber was 101 years old when she died in January 1995. For years, she had lived in a tiny, run-down, rent-controlled studio apartment in Manhattan. The paint on the walls was peeling, and the old bookcases that lined the walls were covered in dust. Rent was $400 a month. Scheiber lived on Social Security and a small monthly pension, which she started receiving in 1943 when she retired as an auditor for the Internal Revenue Service. She was 51 when she retired and was making only $3,150 a year. Scheiber was the model of thrift. She didn't spend money on herself. She didn't buy new furniture as the old pieces she owned became worn out. She didn't even subscribe to a newspaper. About once a week, she used to go to the public library to read the Wall Street Journal. Imagine the surprise of Norman Lamb, the president of Yeshiva University in New York City, 
when he found out that Ann Shiver, a little old lady whose name he had never heard and who had never attended yeshiva, left nearly her entire estate to the university. When I saw the will, it was mind-blowing, such an unexpected windfall, said Lamb. This woman has become a legend overnight. The estate Ann Shiver left to Yeshiva University was worth $22 million. How in the world did a spinster who had been retired for 50 years build an eight-figure fortune? The answer is, she did it, one day at a time. By the time she retired from the IRS in 1943, she had managed to save $5,000. She invested that money in stocks. In 1950, she had made enough profit to buy 1,000 shares of Shearing Plow Corporation stock, then valued at 10000 and she held on to that stock, letting its value build. By the time she died, those original shares split enough times to produce 128,000 shares worth $7.5 million. When it came to finances, Scheiber understood and applied the law of process. Becoming a leader is a lot like investing successfully in the stock market. If you hope to make a fortune in a day, you're not going to be successful. There are no successful day traders in leadership development. What matters most is what you do day by day over the long haul. If you continually invest in your leadership development, letting your assets compound, the inevitable result is growth over time. In a study of 90 top leaders from a variety of fields, leadership experts Warren Bennis and Bert Nannis made a discovery about a relationship between growth and leadership. It is the capacity to develop and improve their skills that distinguishes leaders from their followers. That's what happened to me when I took my first leadership position in 1969. I had captained sports teams all my life and had been the student government president in college, so I already thought that I was a leader. But when I tried to lead people in the real world, I found out the awful truth. Being put in charge is not the same as being a leader. I struggled for a while in that first leadership position. To be honest, I relied on my extremely high energy and whatever charisma I possessed. But there came a moment when I realized that leadership was going to be the key to my professional career. If I didn't get better at leadership, my career would eventually bog down and I would never reach the goals that I had set for myself. Fortunately, at that time, I had breakfast with Kirk Kampmeyer of Success Motivation, Inc. At that breakfast, he asked me a question that would change my life. John, he asked, What is your plan for personal growth? I fumbled for an answer and then finally admitted that I didn't have one. That night, my wife Margaret and I decided to make financial sacrifices so that I could get on the program that Kurt offered. That was an intentional step toward growth. From that day to now, I have made it a practice to read books, listen to tapes, and go to conferences on leadership. Around the time I met with Kurt, I also had another idea. I wrote to the top ten leaders in my field and offered them $100 for half an hour of their time so I could ask them some questions. That was quite a sum for me back then. For the next several years, Margaret and I planned every vacation around where those leaders lived. 
If a great leader in Cleveland said yes to my request, then that year we vacationed in Cleveland so I could meet him. I can't explain how valuable those experiences were for me. Those leaders shared insights with me that I could have learned no other way. When you recognize your lack of skill and begin the daily discipline of personal growth, exciting things start to happen. What a person does on a disciplined, consistent basis gets him ready no matter what the goal. You can see the effect of the law of process in any walk of life. NBA Hall of Fame player Larry Bird became an outstanding free-throw shooter by practicing 500 shots each morning before he went to school. Demosthenes of ancient Greece became the greatest orator by reciting verses with pebbles in his mouth and speaking over the roar of the ocean's waves, and he did it despite having been born with a speech impediment. You need to have the same dedication. To become an excellent leader, you need to work on it every day. Law number four, the law of navigation. Anyone can steer the ship, but it takes a leader to chart the course. In 1911, two groups of explorers set off on an incredible mission. Though they used different strategies and routes, the leaders of the teams had the very same goal, to be the first in history to reach the South Pole. Their stories are life-and-death illustrations of the law of navigation. One group was led by Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen. Ironically, Amundsen had not originally intended to go to Antarctica. His desire was to be the first man to reach the North Pole. But when he discovered that Robert Perry had beaten him there, Amundsen changed his goal and headed toward the other end of the earth. North or south, he knew his planning would pay off. Before his team ever set off, Amundsen had painstakingly planned this trip. He studied the methods of the Eskimos and other experienced Arctic travelers and determined that their best course of action would be to transport all of their equipment and supplies by dog sled. When he assembled his team, he chose expert skiers and dog handlers. His strategy was simple. The dogs would do most of the work as the group traveled 15 to 20 miles in a six-hour period each day. That would afford both the dogs and the men plenty of time for daily rest prior to the following day's travel. Amundsen's forethought and attention to detail were incredible. He located and stocked supply depots all along the intended route. That way, they would not have to carry every bit of their supplies with them the whole trip. He also equipped his people with the best gear possible. Amundsen had carefully considered every possible aspect of the journey, thought it through, and planned accordingly. And it paid off. The worst problem they experienced on their trip was an infected tooth that one man had to have extracted. The other team of people was led by Robert Falcon Scott, a British naval officer who had previously done some exploring in the Antarctic area. Scott's expedition was the antithesis of Amundsen's. Instead of using dog sleds, Scott decided to use motorized sledges and ponies. Their problems began when the motors on the sledges stopped working only five days into the trip. The ponies didn't fare well either in those frigid temperatures. When they reached the foot of the Transantarctic Mountains, all of the poor animals had to be killed. 
As a result, the team members themselves ended up hauling the 200-pound sledges. Scott hadn't given enough attention to the team's other equipment either. Their clothes were so poorly designed that all of the men developed frostbite. One team member required an hour every morning just to get his boots onto his swollen, gangrenous feet. Everyone became snowblind because of their inadequate goggles that Scott had supplied. On top of everything else, the team was always low on food and water. That was also due to Scott's poor planning. The depots of supplies Scott established were inadequately stocked, too far apart, and often poorly marked, which made them very difficult to find. Because they were continually low on fuel to melt snow, everyone became dehydrated. Making things even worse was Scott's last-minute decision to take along a fifth man, even though they had prepared enough supplies for only four. After covering a grueling 800 miles in ten weeks, Scott's exhausted group finally arrived at the South Pole on January 17, 1912. There they found the Norwegian flag flapping in the wind and a letter from Amundsen. The other well-led team had beaten them to their goal by more than a month. Scott's expedition to the Pole is a classic example of a leader who could not navigate for his people. But the trek back was even worse. Scott and his men were starving and suffering from scurvy, yet Scott, unable to navigate to the very end, was oblivious to their plight. With time running out and the food supply desperately low, Scott insisted that they collect thirty pounds of geological specimens to take back, more weight to be carried by the worn-out men. The group's progress became slower and slower. One member of the party sank into a stupor and died. Another, Lawrence Oates, a former Army officer who had originally been brought along to care for the ponies, had frostbite so severe that he had trouble doing anything. Because he believed that he was endangering the team's survival, he purposely walked out into a blizzard to keep from hindering the group. Before he left the tent and headed into the storm, he said, I'm just going outside. I may be some time. Scott and his final two team members made it only a little further north before giving up. The return trip had taken two months, and they still were a hundred and fifty miles from their base camp. There they died. We know their story only because they spent their last hours updating their diaries. Some of Scott's last words were these, We shall die like gentlemen. I think this will show that the spirit of pluck and power to endure has not passed out of our race. Scott had the courage, but not the leadership. Because he was unable to live by the law of navigation, he and his companions died by it. Followers need leaders able to effectively navigate for them. When they're facing life-and-death situations, the necessity is painfully obvious. But even when consequences aren't as serious, the need is also great. The truth is that nearly anyone can steer the ship, but it takes a leader to chart the course. That is the law of navigation. Leaders who navigate do even more than control the direction in which they and their people travel. They see the whole trip in their minds before they leave the dock. They have vision for getting to their destination. They understand what it will take to get there. They know who they'll need on the team to be successful and they recognize the obstacles long before they appear on the horizon. 
Before good leaders take their people on a journey, they go through a process in order to give the trip the best chance of being a success. Navigators draw on past experience. Every past success and failure you've experienced can be a valuable source of information and wisdom, if you allow it to be. Successes teach you what you're capable of doing and give you confidence. However, your failures often teach you greater lessons. They reveal wrong assumptions, character flaws, errors in judgment, and poor working methods. Ironically, many people hate their failures so much that they quickly cover them up instead of analyzing them and learning from them. Why do I even mention something that seems so basic? Because most natural leaders are activists. They tend to look forward, not backward, make decisions, and then move on. I know this because that is my tendency. But for leaders to become good navigators, they need to take time to reflect and learn from their experiences. Navigators examine the conditions before making commitments. Drawing on experience means looking inward. Examining conditions means looking outward. No good leader plans a course of action without paying close attention to current conditions. That would be like setting sail against the tide or plotting a course into a hurricane. Good navigators count the costs before making the commitments for themselves and others. They examine not only measurable factors such as finances, resources, and talent, but also intangibles such as timing, morale, momentum, culture, and so on. Navigators listen to what others have to say. No matter how good a leader you are, you yourself will not have all the answers. That's why top-notch navigators gather information from many sources. For example, before Roald Amundsen began his expedition to the South Pole, he had learned from a group of Native Americans in Canada about warm clothing and Arctic survival techniques. Those skills and practices meant the difference between failure and success for his team in Antarctica. Navigators make sure their conclusions represent both faith and fact. Being able to navigate for others requires a leader to possess a positive attitude. You've got to have faith that you can take your people all the way. If you can't confidently make the trip in your mind, you're not going to be able to take it in real life. On the other hand, you have to be able to see the facts realistically. You can't minimize obstacles or rationalize your challenges and still lead effectively. If you don't go in with your eyes wide open, you're going to get blindsided. When you prepare well, you convey confidence and trust to people. Lack of preparation has the opposite effect. In the end, it's not the size of the project that determines its acceptance, support, and success. It's the size of the leader. That's why I say that anyone can steer the ship, but it takes a leader to chart the course. Leaders who are good navigators are capable of taking their people just about anywhere. Number five, the law of addition. Leaders add value by serving others. In a world where many political leaders enjoy their power and prestige and where CEOs of large corporations make astronomical incomes, work and live in luxury and appear to be most concerned with what's in it for them, Jim Senegal is an oddity. 
Senegal is the co-founder and CEO of Costco, the fourth largest retailer in the United States and the ninth largest in the world. He doesn't seem much interested in perks. He works in an unremarkable office comprised primarily of folding tables and chairs. If he invites someone to meet him at the corporate offices, he goes down to the lobby to meet his guest. He answers his own phone, and he takes a salary of only 350000 a year, which puts him in the bottom 10% of CEOs of large corporations. Retail experts give a lot of attention to Senegal's formula for success. Offer a limited number of items, rely on high-volume sales, keep costs as low as possible, and don't spend money on advertising. But there is something that separates him from the competitors who employ similar strategies the way he treats his employees. He believes in paying his employees well and offering them good benefit packages. Costco employees are paid an average of 42% more than the company's chief rival. And Costco employees pay a fraction of the national average for health care. Senegal believes that if you pay people well, you get good people and good productivity. You also get employee loyalty. Costco has by far the lowest employee turnover rate in all of retailing. But Senegal's leadership style of adding value doesn't end with employee compensation. He goes out of his way to show Costco workers that he cares about them. He maintains an open-door policy with everyone. He wears an employee name tag, is on a first-name basis with everyone, and makes sure to visit every single Costco store at least once a year. No manager and no staff in any business feels very good if the boss is not interested enough to come and see them, says Senegal. And when he shows up, his people are always glad to see him. The employees know that I want to say hello to them because I like them. Senegal goes out of his way to show his people that he cares. He once flew from Texas to the San Francisco area when he heard that a Costco executive was hospitalized for emergency surgery. It came as no surprise to the executive. It was consistent with the way that Senegal always leads. When it comes down to it, Senegal is more focused on adding value to people by serving them than on serving himself or making himself richer with an exorbitant salary. He lives by the law of addition. I just think that if you're going to try to run an organization that's very cost-conscious, then you can't have those disparities. Having an individual who is making 100 or 200 or 300 times more than the average person working on the floor is wrong. Senegal sums it up this way. This is not altruistic. This is good business. He could also say it's good leadership. Many people view leadership the same way they view success, hoping to go as far as they can to climb the ladder to achieve the highest position possible for their talent. But contrary to conventional thinking, I believe the bottom line in leadership isn't how far we advance ourselves, but how far we advance others. That is achieved by serving others and adding value to their lives. The interaction between every leader and follower is a relationship, and all relationships either add to or subtract from a person's life. If you are a leader then trust me, you are having either a positive or negative impact on the people you lead. How can you tell? There is one critical question. Are you making things better for the people who follow you? That's it. 
If you cannot answer with an unhesitant yes and give some evidence that backs it up, then you may very well be a subtractor. Often subtractors don't realize that they are subtracting from others. I would say that 90% of all people who subtract from others do so unintentionally. They don't recognize their negative impact on others, and when a leader is a subtractor and doesn't change his ways, it's only a matter of time before his impact on others goes from subtraction to division. In contrast, 90% of all the people who add value to others do so intentionally. Why do I say that? Because human beings are naturally selfish. I'm selfish. Being an adder requires me to get out of my comfort zone every day and think about adding value to others. But that's what it takes to be a leader whom others want to follow. Do that long enough, and you not only add value to others, you begin to multiply it. The people who make the greatest difference seem to understand this. If you think about some of the people who have won the Nobel Peace Prize, for example, Albert Schweitzer, Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, and Bishop Desmond Tutu, you see leaders who were less interested in their position and more interested in their positive impact on others. If you read their writings or, more important, study their lives, you notice that they wanted to make things better for others, to add value to people's lives. They didn't set out to receive the Nobel Prize— they desired to engage in noble service to their fellow human beings. The specifics depend on the vision, the type of work, and the organization. But the intention is always the same, to add value. When you add value to people, you lift them up, help them advance, make them part of something bigger than themselves, and assist them in becoming who they were made to be. Often their leader is the only person able to help them to do those things. Daryl Hartley Leonard, who retired as chairman of the board of Hyatt Hotels Corporation and is currently chairman and chief executive officer of Production Group International, says, When a person moves into a position of authority, he or she gives up the right to abuse people. I believe that is true. But that is only the beginning of good leadership. Effective leaders go beyond not harming others, and they intentionally help others. To do that, they must value people and demonstrate that they care in such a way that their followers know it. The whole idea of adding value to other people depends on the idea that you have something of value to add. You can't give what you do not possess. What do you have to give others? Can you teach skills? Can you give opportunities? Can you give insight and perspective gained through experience? The more you continue to pursue personal growth, the more you will continue to have to offer. As leaders, how do we know and relate to what our people value? We listen. Inexperienced leaders are quick to lead before knowing anything about the people they intend to lead. But mature leaders listen, learn, and then lead. They listen to their people's stories. They find out about their hopes and dreams. They become acquainted with their aspirations. And they pay attention to their emotions. From those things they learn about their people. They discover what is valuable to them, and then they lead based upon what they have learned. When you do that, everyone wins. The organization, the leader, and the followers. I believe that God desires us not only to treat people with respect, but also to actively reach out to them and serve them. 
When I moved my companies and my family to Atlanta in 1997, it wasn't long before I received a call from Dan Cathy, the president of Chick-fil-A, the privately held national restaurant chain. He had a question for me. John, how can we help you and your organization? What I discovered as I got to know Dan, Truett Cathy, his father and founder of Chick-fil-A, and their entire organization is that an attitude of service pervades everything they do. In 2005, when I hosted Exchange, a weekend leadership growth experience for executives, I took the participants to Chick-fil-A's headquarters south of Atlanta. Everyone got to see the company's operations, meet Truett Cathy, and hear Dan Cathy speak about the organization. He shared many eye-opening comments that revealed their dedication to service and adding value to their employees and customers. For example, Dan was preparing that day to camp out with customers for the 19th time on the eve of a new restaurant opening. He said that he had gotten to know customers and their desires in a way he never could before he had started that practice. If you desire to add value by serving others, you will begin to become a better leader, and your people will achieve more, develop more loyalty, and have a better time getting things done than you ever thought possible. That is the power of the law of addition. Law number six, the law of solid ground. Trust is the foundation of leadership. How important is trust for a leader? It is the most important thing. Trust is the foundation of leadership. It is the glue that holds an organization together. Leaders cannot repeatedly break trust with people and continue to influence them. It just doesn't happen. As a nation, we have seen our trust in leaders go up and down during the last several decades. Watergate certainly took its toll on the American people's confidence in leadership. Trust in President Richard Nixon became so low that he had no choice but to resign. He lost his ability to influence. Bill Clinton was a remarkably gifted leader, but questions of trust undermined his leadership. The corporate scandals of the 1990s shook people's confidence in business leadership. Reports of sexual harassment at the military academies undermined confidence in leadership in the armed services. And the incidents of abuse in the Catholic Church disillusioned many people with its leadership. Leaders cannot lose trust and continue to influence others. Trust is the foundation of leadership. That's the law of solid ground. Trust is like change in a leader's pocket. Each time you make a good leadership decision, you earn more change. Each time you make poor decisions, you pay out some of your change to the people. All leaders have a certain amount of change in their pocket when they start in their new leadership position. Whatever they do either builds up their change or depletes it. If leaders make one bad decision after another, they keep paying out change. Then one day, after making one last bad decision, they suddenly and irreparably run out of change. It doesn't even matter if that last blunder was big or small. At that point, it's too late. When you're out of change, you're out as the leader. In contrast, leaders who keep making good decisions and keep recording wins for their organization build up change. Then, even if they make a huge blunder, they still have plenty of change left over. How does a leader build trust? By consistently exemplifying competence, connection, and character. 
People will forgive occasional mistakes based on ability, especially if they can see that you're still growing as a leader. And they will give you some time to connect, but they won't trust someone who has slips in his character. In that area, even occasional lapses are lethal. Whenever you lead people, it's as if they consent to take a journey with you. The way that trip is going to turn out is predicted by your character. With good character, the longer the trip is, the better it seems. But if your character is flawed, the longer the trip is, the worse it gets. Why? Because no one enjoys spending time with someone he doesn't trust. A person's character quickly communicates many things to others. Here are the most important ones. Character communicates consistency. Leaders without inner strength can't be counted on day after day because their ability to perform changes constantly. If your people don't know what to expect from you as a leader, at some point they won't look to you for leadership. Character communicates potential. Weak character is limiting. Who do you think has the greatest potential to achieve great dreams and have a positive impact on others? Someone who is honest, disciplined, and hardworking, or someone who is deceitful, impulsive, and lazy? It sounds obvious when it's phrased that way, doesn't it? Poor character is like a time bomb ticking away. It's only a matter of time before it blows up a person's ability to perform and the capacity to lead. Why? Because people with weak character are not trustworthy, and trust is the foundation of leadership. Character communicates respect. When you don't have character within, you can't earn respect without. And respect is absolutely essential for lasting leadership. How do leaders earn respect? By making sound decisions, by admitting their mistakes, and by putting what's best for their followers and the organization ahead of their personal agendas. I mentioned Watergate and the various public scandals that have undermined the public's confidence in leaders during the last 30 years. But the event that I believe began to erode the public's faith in the nation's leaders and develop strong skepticism in the country was the war in Vietnam. The actions taken by members of the Johnson administration, the mistakes made by Robert McNamara, and their unwillingness to face and admit those mistakes broke trust with the American people. They violated the law of solid ground, and the United States has been suffering from the repercussions ever since. If you experience those war years, you may be surprised to know that in the beginning, American support for the war was very strong, even as the number of troops being sent overseas rapidly increased and the casualties mounted. By 1966, more than 200,000 Americans had been sent to Vietnam, yet two-thirds of all Americans surveyed by Lewis Harris believed that Vietnam was the place where the United States should stand and fight communism. And most people expressed the belief that the United States should stay until the fight was finished. But support eventually eroded. The Vietnam War was being handled very badly. On top of that, our leaders continued the war even after they realized that we couldn't win. But the worst mistake of all was that McNamara and President Johnson weren't honest with the American people about it. And because trust is the foundation of leadership, it ultimately destroyed the administration's leadership. In his book, In Retrospect, McNamara recounts that he repeatedly minimized American losses and told only half-truths about the war. For example, he says, 
Upon my return to Washington from Saigon on December 21, 1963, I was less than candid when I reported to the press. I said we observed the results of very substantial increase in Viet Cong activity, which is true. But I then added, we reviewed the plans of the South Vietnamese, and we have every reason to believe that they will be successful, an overstatement at best. For a while, nobody questioned McNamara's statements because there was no reason to mistrust the country's leaders. But in time, people recognized that his words and the facts weren't matching up. And that's when the American public began to lose faith. Years later, McNamara admitted his failure. We have the Kennedy and Johnson administration who participated in the decisions on Vietnam act according to what we thought were the principles and the traditions of this nation. We made our decisions in light of those values, yet we were wrong, terribly wrong. Many would argue that McNamara's admission came 30 years and 58,000 lives too late. The cost of Vietnam was high, and not just in human lives. As the American people's trust in their leaders deteriorated, so did their willingness to follow them. Protests led to open rebellion and to society-wide turmoil. The era that had begun with hope and idealism characterized by John F. Kennedy ultimately ended with the mistrust and cynicism associated with Richard Nixon. Whenever a leader breaks the law of solid ground, he pays a price in his leadership. McNamara and President Johnson lost the trust of the American people, and their ability to lead suffered as a result. Eventually, McNamara resigned as Secretary of Defense, Johnson, the consummate politician, recognized his weakened position, and he didn't run for re-election. But the repercussions of broken trust didn't end there. The American people's distrust for politicians has continued to this day. No leader can break trust with his people and expect to keep influencing them. Trust is the foundation of leadership. Violate the law of solid ground, and you diminish your influence as a leader. Law number seven, the law of respect. People naturally follow leaders stronger than themselves. If you had seen her, your first reaction might not have been respect. She wasn't a very impressive-looking woman, just a little over five feet tall in her late thirties, with dark brown weathered skin. She couldn't read or write. The clothes she wore were coarse and worn. When she smiled, she revealed that her two top front teeth were missing. Her employment was erratic. Most of the time, she took domestic jobs in small hotels, scrubbing floors, making up rooms, and cooking. But just about every spring and fall, she would disappear from her place of employment, come back broke, and work again to scrape together what little money she could. When she was present on the job, she worked hard and seemed physically tough but she also was known to suddenly fall asleep, sometimes in the middle of a conversation. She attributed her affliction to a blow in the head that she had taken during a teenage fight. Who would respect a woman like that? The answer is more than 300 slaves who followed her to freedom out of the South. They recognized and respected her leadership. So did just about every abolitionist in New England. The year was 1857. The woman's name was Harriet Tubman. 
Tubman started life as a slave. She was born in 1820 and grew up in the farmland of Maryland. When she was 13, she received the blow to her head that troubled her all of her life. She was in a store, and a white overseer demanded her assistance so that he could beat an escaping slave. When she refused and blocked the overseer's way, the man threw a two-pound weight that hit Tubman in the head. She nearly died, and her recovery took months.